for those that have been, um, those that have this workbook, um, some of you may be aware that the, uh, the middle school and high school students are also going through this program as well. Um, the challenge from last week was twofold. There was homework, and as adults, we're not familiar with that, by the way, and I found that out this week because I ended up like halfway through the week being like, where's my homework? You know, like it was lost, like the dog had ate it. My kids knew exactly where their homework was. They're better at this than I am. But there was uh, two pieces of homework. One of them was to memorize memory card number one. So if you've got a workbook and you flip to the very last page, it looks something like this. There's four cards on a single page that can tear out, and the first one is called God. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about that this morning. So that was last week's homework. No show of hands, but hopefully some of you were encouraged by that. Even if you just read through it a couple of times, I think you'll find it very beneficial. So then there's man, Christ, and center. So that was our homework for last week is to look at this card about God. There's three kind of parts on there. He created, uh, God created and owns everything. He is perfectly holy and he requires perfect obedience to his law. We'll talk about that in a moment. Then there's some verses that go along with it. So I hope that you were encouraged and blessed by that. And then secondly, there was a worksheet number one. Now this one's harder to find. You gotta flip back a few pages from the back side of the notebook and it looks like this and it has name, date and there's really kind of two, uh, three pieces of homework from this past week. One of them was to identify three unbelievers, family, friends, coworkers and you know, write them down maybe, tell them to somebody and pray daily that God would bring them to repentance and that he would give you specifically and others opportunities to share the gospel with them. Now that might sound overwhelming, but I would challenge you all to do it, even if you're not going through the program. Stop for just a moment and think, what is one or two persons that I would love to hear, I would love to see that they came to the saving faith in Jesus Christ? And I would challenge you to do something else, and that is I would challenge you not only to pray for them, but I would challenge you to share that name with one other person. It can be someone in your small group, it can be somewhere else. You know, Pastor Dusty reminded us two weeks ago in our normal message through Psalm 139 that accountability is not waiting for someone to come and ask us a question, right? It's not like, oh man, I hope my accountability partner doesn't ask me that question today because I'm not ready for it. Being accountable, if we want to be accountable, if we want to be accountable to God and to his word, then we go to someone else and we say something like this. It's like, hey, Clint, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray because last Tuesday after work, I was grabbing dinner with a guy. His name was Lucas. And we were chatting and it was just, you know, we were having this conversation. We talked about work. We talked about some other things. And somewhere in the middle of the conversation, he's like, Ben, he's like, you keep saying this word church. He's like, what does that mean? And I said, well, you know, and because I'm not a bold evangelist, I was waiting for him to ask a good question. And he did. And so I said, well, you know, I just, I just believe in Jesus Christ and the Bible. And so if you want to know what Ben believes about life, you just got to pick up a Bible and read it. And uh, I'd love to tell you about that more sometime. And uh, then our conversation went a little bit longer, and that, and that was kind of the end of it. But I just asked you to pray for Lucas, because, you know, in God's providence, I might get to see him in another couple of weeks the next time I travel. So um, pray for him. And that's it. And that's how we hold ourselves accountable. And you don't have to say it to this many people. You could just pick one or two people, and that would be great, too. But I know that Lucas would love your prayers, even though he doesn't know it, because he needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's make sure that we're keeping track of those and we're praying for them and we're praying for one another that we might be bold to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second thing we were supposed to do is there's a worksheet that says choose one of the unbelievers from this list and interview them using the following questions. Um, but before we get started, I guess I would just ask a question in the audience and this isn't a this isn't an attendance question, this isn't a who did their homework question, but as we thought about evangelism this past week, as maybe we read through that memory card number one, we read through worksheet one, maybe we didn't fill it out to the full extent of the law, how are you encouraged this week 
as you thought about evangelism, as you prayed for opportunities for evangelism, maybe as you even found as evangelism. Someone just share just, just one or two brief words. It doesn't have to be a paragraph. It can be a sentence. Just say, I was encouraged this week because... Thank you, Mr. Leshevsky. It's as simple as it is. We take the word of God and we just deliver it. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to craft it. The word of God is there. It's living and active. It's powerful. The gospel is there and we just have to take it to those that need to hear it. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. What a ch- You know, you said something. Um, you, you said, what do you have to lose? I'll tell you, there's something that's true about me. And I, and I think because it's true about me, there's a good chance it's true about at least a few of you. Is that it is easy for me to regret missed opportunities. But I tell you what, there is not one time that I have regretted sharing the gospel. Even when I was weak and I was terrified, I didn't get to the other side and be like, I can't believe I did that. Like that was, I'm never doing that again. No, God gives you a grace and a peace. And so just pray about that. It is hard. I am not a bold individual by any means when it comes to sharing the gospel. I need your prayers just like you need mine. But I pray that God would work through us um, to work. I tell you what, the thing that almost broke my heart this week is um, when, um, like I said, our our students are also doing this. One of my high school students, later in the week, I said, hey, were either of you doing your homework and thinking they were going to be just as terrible a homework person as I was? And one of my kids looks at me, my 14-year-old, and says, well, it was kind of weird and it was kind of awkward but I was chatting with Kristen at swim team and this is what she told me about what she believes about God. And I was like, man, I gotta step up and I gotta have the boldness of a 14 year old. So praise God for those of you that have students in the other program, make sure to ask them because I think they can encourage you just like you can encourage them. I think it'll be a blessing to all of us. We're gonna hop in lesson number two, the gospel presentation this morning. We're gonna do this in two parts. We're gonna do part one today and part two next week. But before we do that, let's just do a quick uh, review of where we were last week. Just throw this up on the slide for us real quick. Um, Four points from last week as we were talking about the foundation of biblical evangelism. Number one, the mission, God's ultimate purpose for evangelism is to glorify himself. That's the great part. You know, when I think about um, Joseph's comment just a second ago is that we don't have to be terrified because this isn't about me at all. This is about God. Evangelism is about God and who he is and what he has done and what he has declared about himself and his word and what he will do in and through um, those um, whom he will save. Ephesians says he, do, he redeems us to the praise of the glory of his grace. We're thankful for that. The motivation, believers are motivated by a love for God. They obey his commands. You know, and as, as cheeky as it sounds, you know, there's not one of you out here that has a favorite restaurant that you've never told anybody. You're not like, hey, you know what? Like, this is the best place ever. I love it. The steak is so good. But you know what? I can't tell anybody because the last time I told somebody about my favorite steak restaurant, they're like, no, 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 no. 
It's this other steak restaurant. And the problem is I didn't have a really good apologetic as to why my steak restaurant was better. I couldn't explain the seasonings and the servers. I didn't know enough about the chef and that boulonnaise sauce or something that starts with a B. And there was like mushroom. Like I couldn't describe why my steak restaurant was better. And then I've talked to some people and they like seafood. And I'm like, I don't even know how to compare steak and seafood because I don't know all these different flavors and I don't know all these denominations and religions and cults and all this stuff. And like, how could I do that? Like, maybe I just won't tell anybody about my favorite restaurant. I think that is a better option because the last time I did, I never saw that guy again. He's like, what? You like that steak restaurant? It was done. It was over. And I was like, man, that's rough. If we love God the way that we love our favorite restaurant, let's go tell somebody about him. Our believers are motivated by love for God. The message, a God-centered gospel presentation emphasizes God's glory and man's sinfulness. It's all about God's glory and our sinfulness in light of God's glory. The method we evangelize with a transformed lifestyle and a biblical presentation. Now, just to be clear, over the course of these eight weeks, we're gonna be primarily talking about a biblical presentation. And once again, that's for good reason, because a lot of times, especially in, I believe, modern Christendom, we like to think we've got the transformed lifestyle figured out. We're like, you know, I'm going to lead a good biblical lifestyle, and if someone trips over a Bible while watching me do my awesome good works, and they happen to read it and learn about the gospel, that would be amazing, but Lord, please don't make me talk to them. That would be terrifying, right? And so, by the way, both are true. We must marry a transformed lifestyle life-changing works, let your good works, let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father as in heaven. We know that that is true, and you know that that is true as well, because you've seen that in your homes and in your workplaces. And sometimes I've seen that, and they've said to me, hey, Ben, like, you're a different kind of employer, you're a different kind of manager. And uh, I always say, well, you know, I hope so, because my goal is to lead my team according to the principles found in the Bible because of my faith in Jesus Christ. And they're always like, well, well, let's talk about restaurants again, right? You know, but, but so we should, we should have a transformed lifestyle, but we should also marry that with a biblical presentation. Now, uh, some of you have these, um, these student workbooks. I'm gonna flip to uh, whatever page you guys are in. Let me see, page 11, page nine, page nine. If you got workbook, you're on page nine. I'm gonna try and follow along. Um, in my notes, I've written down which ones are in your workbook so we can see them together. It starts off our introduction. It takes hard work to be clear and understandable with the gospel message. That's why we're here. We believe that taking the gospel to the lost is an important thing. And just as we equip ourselves for physical activity and we equip ourselves for work and we equip ourselves for academia, we're going to equip ourselves to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world desperately in need of it. As we go through this, we're going to find, by the way, that there's many verses that can be used to explain the gospel. Um, and by the way, this lesson may not use all of your favorite verses. And that's okay, you don't have to walk out now, you can walk out later, like that's fine. No, like, right, like the great thing about this is that some of us are coming to this training today and we're saying like, hey, you know what, I've never, you know, I'm a new believer or maybe I've just never been bold to share the gospel and that's okay, hopefully these tools will equip you. Or maybe you're saying like, hey Ben, like, you're, you're, you're on the weak side, I'm on the strong side. People keep telling me, shut it down, man, you're talking too much about God, and you've got all these verses, and great, and I hope that this is encouragement to you as well. But this is meant to be a guideline. You're gonna say, oh, well, that, that verse about sinfulness, I've got a better verse than sinfulness. Well, let's be clear, they're all pretty good because they're God's words, not mine or yours, but that's okay, we can use those, and so as we go through it, that's okay. But we're gonna just go through this, and hopefully it's an encouragement and a blessing to each of you. 
And so these, um, these points that we're going to go through aren't necessarily meant to be dogmatically in order either. I know you're thinking like, Ben, are you ever going to get to point one? I will, I promise. But the other thing I want us to understand is they don't have to fall in order, right? So we're going to talk about God and man this week. Next week, we're going to talk about Christ and sinners. But, you know, maybe you're talking to an individual and maybe because of some apparel you're wearing, that fish sticker that those of you that are bold enough on your driving habits to put in your back of your car, you know, maybe someone's like, hey man, like, tell me about Christ. And you're like, well, okay, well, wait a second. I would love to tell you about Christ, but hold on just a minute. Before I get there, I need to tell you about God and then about man and then about Christ and then about sinners. So we're going to get to your question in just a moment, but no, what do you do? You say like, let me tell you about Christ. He's, he's the most amazing thing to me. He is my savior. He's my Lord. He lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death for me. And the reason he did that is because there is a God in heaven. Whoop, transition point. That's all it takes. We don't have to do this in order. We just follow God's word and God's spirit and he enables us to do this. So we're going to follow in order both now and in future weeks. But the joy of the Lord is that God's spirit, it says the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And the Lord does that in evangelism as well. Which is why, like to Joseph's point, it's just simple. We just take the book and we take it to the person that needs it. And we're confident that God will lead us along the way. Even in event, we don't have to have the whole thing mapped out. We're going to talk about ways to do that, but sometimes it doesn't turn out that way. By the way, we're going to talk about some illustrations as well as we go through our presentation, or talk about the biblical present or the gospel presentation, gospel proclamation. There's a couple things to keep mindful of, and I think one of the most important ones is this: is that if you're looking for a great example, I would start with this book, and I'll tell you the reason why is because biblical examples are used by the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's word. Now there's something I know about the words that I use and it's that sometimes when they come out of my mouth, they don't always mean or accomplish what I intend them to. Sometimes I'm at work and I'm like, I've got this great argument and then I open my mouth and then man, do I regret that sentence, right? But the cool thing is that Isaiah 55, eight says this, the Lord is speaking. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord. Verse 11, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That is what the word of God does. And so that's why there's gonna be a lot of verses in our content because we believe the word of God is living and active. It's powerful. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And 2 Timothy 3.15, it is that which leads men and women unto salvation. So before you look at your notes, a question for the audience. This will be less scary than <laughs> tell me about how you did your homework. Um, if you were walking up to someone and said like, man, I wish I, I should probably tell them something about God. What is something that you would want to say? One sentence, one word, one phrase. What would you want to say? What would you want to tell someone about God? Mm-hmm. Her comment to me was, well, I think the Quran is okay, mm-hmm. and I think if you're just a good person, mm-hmm. that you'll go to heaven, and that's mm-hmm. all good and everything. Yeah. Well, that immediately just arose a fight in me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, 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 you're wrong, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. A good person isn't going to get you to heaven, that's mm-hmm. just not the way it is. Mm-hmm. 
and I didn't really handle it right. And I asked her, well, what does the Quran say? Does it say mm-hmm. that Jesus was born of a virgin and mm-hmm. he walked the earth as a man and, yeah. and all the way up to the cross? Mm. I don't know. I don't yeah. think it says that he died on the cross. Mm. Yeah. Well, then the Bible says the Quran's all wrong. It's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And if you read the Quran and mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I appreciate your honesty, right? It, it's hard sometimes in evangelism to be like, man, did I make a mistake here? And the cool thing is if we believe in a sovereign God and we believe that his word is true, then the thing that we have to remember is that our goal is to say, like, I would love to say that I had enough hours in my day to, meet, to be infinitely wise about every religion that's out there. But I don't. And so you know what I spend a lot of my time doing? I like reading this book. And... So there's sometimes, I don't have the answers to all of these other things and all the other things that they believe. It's like, but let me tell you about God. And so I think that's what's great about what we're going to start with here is we're going to say, what does the word of God say and who is God? Thank you for sharing. Anyone else? I would say uh, that God is our creator and it is him to whom we will give an account. And start with that. God is our creator and it is him to whom we will give an account. Well, you know what? I think that that is a great segue. Thank you very much. God is the creator and owner of everything. God is the creator and owner of everything. The Bible tells us that God created all things and is involved in all parts of his creation. God took special care by making man in his own image. Man is not an impersonal machine or an animal, but is made to have a relationship with God to honor and worship him. God loves his creation. He called it very good Man is ultimately responsible to God and will one day answer to him for what he has done. Genesis 1.1, read the first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is what we need to make sure that you and I understand about God and that we communicate is that God is the creator and owner of everything. By the way, the great part about that, um, when you and I create things, they like, you know, sometimes they're weird. Sometimes we're like not going to try that recipe again. But God created everything perfectly and exactly as he intended. That is the God that we serve. As creator, he is the ultimate authority. By the way, the, the creator part, you know, it's not uncommon that when you talk to people, there, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, there's a lot of theories out there about how this world got to be and all this stuff. But there's a decent number of people, even that wouldn't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that might acknowledge that God is some sort of creator. He might have done something around those lines. Maybe he kicked it off and he's watched it from the sidelines or whatever. Like, they might acknowledge that, right? But I tell you what, how many of them are like, <clears throat> do you think that God is the owner of everything? They're like... But that's what God's word declares. 1 Corinthians 10, 26, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Psalm 24, 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, listen to this, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Because he is the creator and owner of everything, he has created all, but he also says, I own it all. It's mine. And I am God and I get to do with it what I will. Paul helps us in Romans 9 later when he depicts God as the potter. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? 
No one would look at a piece of clay and be like, you know what, that guy's got rights. I cannot believe that you didn't ask his opinion before you decided what you were going to do with him. You don't get to tell that clay what, you don't get to, uh, Potter, who are you? This guy, I'm going to campaign. Rights for pots, rights for clay, like, are you kidding me? Like, it just sounds ridiculous. And God says in the same way, I am sovereign, I am creator God, and I have full authority over what I have made. He has no need to ask permission of anyone or to defend his actions. He is the creator and owner of everything. God can do as he pleases with what is his. And I tell you what, that's so important. We need to make sure people understand it because some people are going to tell us, oh, you know, that God, he's, he's, he's a God of, like, he like loves people, right? He does that kind of stuff. Maybe he's a little bit gracious. Sometimes they might think that he's angry and judgmental depending upon the circumstances or in their life or what's going on in the, in the world abroad. Some of them might even try and deny his existence altogether, but ultimately God says, I'm creator and owner of everything. And because I've created everything and because I own everything, there is a response to that. I'm sorry. Yeah, praise the Lord. Oh, for sure. Thank you. Thank but, you for sharing. Yeah, but I still feel like I, I was too forceful and I didn't handle it right. Well, and that's why we can just pray that the Lord gives us another opportunity. But what when we speak the word of God, when we say, God's word declares in John, I am the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father but through me. Then the great thing is it's not a debate with you, it's a debate with God. It's a debate with his word. Isn't that great? We don't have to have fancy words, we just have to hold up the word. And if they reject the word, then they are rejecting their creator and king. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Scripture teaches us that God has made himself evident to all mankind. And so we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But we see that God is creator and owner of everything. And what does that mean? Well, first off, it means that the person of God is revealed in creation. The person of God is revealed in creation. We see this in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. God has said that not only am I the creator and owner of everything, but in my creation, I have left my eternal power and divine nature. He hasn't left it. He like put it there and it was obvious and it was revealed and you all and everyone on this earth is without excuse, God's word declares. And so when we're sharing the gospel message, we need to tell them, hey, let me tell you about a God. He's created everything, he's owned everything, and he has revealed, he has not hidden himself away, he has revealed himself through what he has made. But that also means that we are without excuse. What is his eternal power? It means that God's never failing, God has a never failing power over all things. He created this earth and he preserves it. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Awesome. He created everything 
Verse 17, he is before all things, and listen to this, and in him all things hold together. There's some even in Christendom that would say, you know what, God kind of like kicked off this creation thing, and now he's just kind of sitting on the side just seeing what's happening. And God's words declares, no, that is patently false. He created all things through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. That is what our creator has done. And he says he has revealed this about himself through the creation that he has made. We can see that in the way that the world operates. It is held together. You and I are held together. This world is held together by our good and gracious God. Divine nature. There's a statement about God's kindness and grace to all men. Matthew 5.45 says this, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Some theologians call this common grace. That when we walk outside, the rain for the crops doesn't only fall on the land of the believer. And the unbeliever is like right there. He's like, how come you get rain and I don't know? God's common grace says he gives rain, he gives food, he gives shelter, he gives provision. He has given a common grace to all And that is an aspect of revealing his divine nature, his attributes, his kindness, his grace. Remember we learn later in um, one of Peter's epistles that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance, right? And so we are thankful for that, that God has revealed all of this to us. The fact that we are here and he has not incinerated this earth because of its rebellion and sin is because of God's kindness and grace. And so we're thankful for that. And we see that God has revealed himself through creation. And these are conversations that we can have because the unsaved people understand that maybe sometimes they're not living the life that they would want to live before God. And yet God in his grace, he usually provides them with food and sometimes with shelter and sometimes with a job and sometimes with a family and sometimes with neighbors that are kind to them even when they don't feel that's deserving. That is God's kindness. That is his divine nature. By the way, his, his eternal power, the, the, the unsaved person knows this too, right? Because when something traumatic happens, they want to blame it on somebody outside themselves. They're not sure who, they're not sure what his name is. They think it might be a God, but they want to blame it on somebody because, see, they, they understand that there is something that is outside of their control and they don't know how to deal with it. And it's way easier to say, why God in those moments But they see that. God has revealed himself through creation. And if God has revealed himself, that he is the creator of owner of everything, and that he has revealed his, that the person of God is revealed in creation, then we also see that not only has he revealed um, his personhood, but he's also revealed his law. It says the law of God is revealed in the conscience. The law of God is revealed in the conscience. Romans 2 says this, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So God has said, I am the creator and owner of everything, and you can see that I am God because I have written myself all throughout creation. And not only that, I have not stopped there. I have revealed my law to you because I have put it into each and every one of you because God in his goodness and grace gave us a conscience. A couple things about the conscience. By the way, this doesn't need to be an apologetic that you like fight with somebody about, but I think it's helpful to think about what the conscience is and what it does because you're going to find that your conscience is different than the unsaved person's conscience 
and there's a couple reasons why. First, the conscience is an alarm system. It is designed to warn you against danger, to keep you from breaking God's law. It is not a guide through life. Regardless of what you have heard or seen, it is not a Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience always be your guide. Not cool. But God has given us a conscience to give us a guard against sin. And it is an alarm system, but it is also an imperfect alarm system. But all of you know this. There have all been times from even your very youngest years when you went to do something, you're like, I don't know about that. And we know that there's an alarm system because we know when we look at world atrocities and see things in the news that there's a majority of people that respond viscerally to those activities. And that is because the law of God is written in their hearts regardless of which book they may read or which religion they may practice. There is an alarm system that God has put into each of us through the conscience so that we would know that God's law is there. But it's not a perfect alarm system. This is point number two. The conscience activates based on, by the way, I didn't write this sentence. I had to read it three times to understand it. Based on the level of good that it knows. The conscience activates based on the level of good that it knows. Now, what does this mean? Well, I had to think about it for a little bit. And I think I know what he's trying to say in his book here. And he's trying to say this. He's trying to say that God has put his law onto our hearts, but that does not mean that we understand God's law perfectly because we are fallible human beings. It also doesn't mean that we can understand the perfect law of God through his creation. We know that there is a moral law and we know that we have broken it. God's word says that our conscience allows it to do that. But what it doesn't say is that that means that we understand everything perfectly that we need to know about God and who he, has, who he is and what he expects for us. Now, some of us have a better conscience than others because we have sat reading this book. We see what God has revealed himself in creation. We know that God has put his law in our hearts, but we say, well, what does God really ask of me? What does he really want of me? And God says, I've given you everything that you need for life and godliness, Second Peter, right here. And so maybe, and you know this to be true, like I know some of you are like, man, this is kind of a weird thought, but you know this to be true because when you were first a Christian, you're like, man, I'm doing pretty good. And then you like, we're reading through your Bible and you're like, <gasps> whoa, <laughs> I didn't know that one, Lord. I got some repenting to do right now. Because God revealed himself through your word. Now, this is important when you're going to talk to an unbeliever because you may say like, oh, I cannot believe you engage in that sin. And they're like, what sin? Like, this is just called Tuesday. Like, this is what I do, right? And so our consciences are different and our consciences activate based on the level of good that it knows. And so we should not expect that an unbeliever in all areas is gonna be as offended as we are when we see God's moral law being broken. And that's okay. Our goal is not to tell them like, <clears throat> let, me t let me write for you down all the sins that you don't know about that you're doing. Like, I think that would help us get you to Jesus faster. No, we just have to understand that. We have to understand where they are at. And that's why they need Jesus. They need the Holy Spirit. They need someone. The, the Bible says that a natural man cannot understand the things of God. They need the Holy Spirit of God. They need salvation. So just be aware of that. And then the third point that also kind of goes along with this excuse me, is that the conscience can be reprogrammed. The conscience can be reprogrammed, right? We saw this earlier in Romans 1 where it says um, that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, right? Like that's what an unbelieving world does. It suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And, as, and every time that you commit a sin and say, no, God, I'm going to ignore my conscience, 1 Timothy 4.2 says there are those who have seared their consciences. We can allow ourselves to be deadened against sin. We can do that. And an unbeliever can do that as well. And so that's why we have to understand that when we're talking to them, you know, sometimes it can be tricky. And always the best way is to be like, let's just talk about this book. 
And let's understand that their understanding of God's moral law and their responsibility to it may be slightly different than yours and mine in any given moment, and that's okay because God is continuing to work through them and through the conscience. But one thing that we can typically always agree on is that most individuals, unless they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness according to Romans 1, will acknowledge that there usually there is something, some God, and that there is some moral code. They don't know what it is. They don't know how absolute it is. They don't know whether it's true for all people or all circumstances, but they acknowledge that there is something. And God says, that's because I put my law in their hearts. This is what God does. This is what God does in his grace and goodness, right? And that's why even, even the unbeliever can recognize, by the way, I, I, I spend a lot of my time in corporate America and you can pray for me about that because anyway, um, but, but what, what's crazy right now is servant leadership is this big theme right now in corporate America, servant leadership. You know, you don't have to be that harsh, demanding leader. You can be, you can be a servant. You can be empathetic. You can be, and the crazy thing is I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I've actually always believed that the way to be a really good employee is to walk according to this book. And sometimes the world trips over it. And it's just funny, right? And, um, but that's because God's law has been written on the hearts of man. And sometimes we stumble upon it, even in, our, even in their darkness. So they understand things like justice, honesty, compassion, goodness. They recognize that random acts of kindness are good. We don't know why. You know, you've probably heard that. There's all these things about random acts of kindness and volunteering. Like they're all good. That's great. We don't know why we do them. We're not sure why we do them. Scripture says it's because they have a law of God written in their hearts. It doesn't make them righteous. It hasn't brought them to right relationship with God. But it does mean that they understand that there is a law written in their hearts. By the way, the Scripture also uh, shows this to us. There's a couple of, um, for those that have the, the workbook, there's a couple of illustrations here. Uh, Cain murdered and lied about it, Genesis 4, 9. Cain did not go to God, by the way, or to his parents and be like, hey, guess what I just did? Right? No, he lied about it. He knew that there was something wrong there way before thou shalt not kill was given to Moses. Jacob deceived his father about his brother's birthright. Once again, it's obvious if you read that passage, he knew that maybe this was a little bit shady, but he was going to do it anyway. Joseph refused adultery with Potiphar's wife. We see that in Genesis 39. Each of these are biblical examples of people who through God's law being written on their hearts knew even before God's law had been written in the Ten Commandments that those things were violations, that they were not worshiping God, they were not loving God in those ways. That is God's gift to us. It's his gift to all mankind. The conscience is like a nerve in our tooth, the workbook says, that causes pain when it is touched. The unsaved person wants to deaden that nerve, but we want to continually touch it by speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Our, our goal is to continually work with God through the conscience that he has given man to show them you're in need of a savior. We see that God is revealed himself as the creator and owner of everything. We see that he has revealed his personhood. We see that he has revealed things about his attributes. We see that he has revealed that he has a law and he has put it in our conscience. And then he goes on to say that he is perfectly holy. God is perfectly holy. So not only has he put a law out there, but he has said, I keep it perfectly. God is perfectly holy. Holy, Matthew 5, 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In God's divine nature, he has created us, he owns us, he has put a law out there and he has said that law that I have put out there, 
I keep perfectly. First Peter says, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. First Samuel says, there is no one, listen, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. That is the God who we serve. He is the creator and owner of everything. And if you are talking to someone and they think that they create and own everything and their control of everything, just to remind them about the way that God operates in his world and the catastrophes that have laid waste to cities and all kinds of things because they are not in control. God is the creator and owner of everything. He has put his law in their hearts and he keeps it perfectly, he says, so that letter C in your notes, God requires perfect obedience to his law. He has declared that those who will have relationship will meet with me, those who I have created to be in my image, Genesis 127, shall reflect my nature. And so God says, not only am I a perfect, perfectly, <clears throat> perfectly holy, in keeping with my own law, but I require that of those whom I have created. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. God's word declares that if you have sinned even once, you are under judgment as if you have broken all of God's law. Now I was thinking about that this week <clears throat> and I've read that a bunch of times. And I remember the first time I read it, the hairs on my neck kind of like, I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I really just did this. Don't you understand? I just did, did a small thing. I was trying to think of the best analogy I could think of. And this is what I was thinking of. Let's say you are reading through God's word. And you get to one verse. You get to just one verse. You're like, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. If I was talking to the students, I'd be like, what do you think about that? Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. What if, for a moment, you say, I don't know what I think about that verse. I don't know what I think about that verse. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you sat in judgment of one verse of God's Bible, or have you sat in judgment of all of God's Bible? Because the moment that I get to pick and choose anything that is in or out, then I've decided for all of it. Because consciously when I said that verse is out, what I'm saying is that actually I think the other ones are in. So I've gone from accepting God's word to sitting in judgment of all of it. Think about that for a moment when you're reading this book. Do we take God at his word or do we read a verse and be like, I don't know about that one. I don't know about that one. I don't know about that one. Because the moment we do it with one verse, then we have said, God, I don't know about this book at all. And I'm going to tell you what I think about every single verse. And when I like it, it's in. And when I don't, it's out. In the same way, or I would say maybe in a similar way, he says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Either God has said, you need to be holy for I am holy, or we reject that. I tell you what, and that's a sobering truth, but we need to understand that and we need to help a dying world in need of a savior understand that as well. God requires perfect obedience to his law. Now, a couple of things before we move on to man. We just have to be mindful. Um, we were so helpful to be reminded of it just right now that a lot of people will use words, like they will use the word God 
And it may not be the same word that we use, right? And so we have to understand as we're talking to people, we're always grounding ourselves back in the word of God. And so we're saying, hey, let me tell you what, who God is and what he means. And let me show you that through the Bible. Because a lot of times, especially when you're talking to an unbeliever, I remember I was 16 years old and God in his providence gave me boldness for one hot minute. And I, and I walked it to, over to one of my co-workers and I was like, oh, well, you're a Roman Catholic, so you believe such and such. He's like, what? He's like, oh, oh, well, you believe such and such. He's like, what? I tell you, it was the funniest conversation because I didn't have a clue what this guy believed. And I thought because I knew something about something that I knew what this guy believed. And so what we have to do is we got to start by saying, this is what the word of God says. And then we lead them through. But we have to be careful about making assumptions, not only on what someone believes because of what they state their religion might be or their, their, um, their practice might be, but let's talk about what the words actually are. So just something to be mindful of. Um, there's a lot of good people that will say, oh yeah, I love God and I want to follow him and whatever. What do those mean? What does it mean? Who is the God that you serve? How, what are you following? What does it mean to follow God? Great questions to ask. But if we know that God is the creator and owner of everything, he's revealed himself, he's revealed the law of God, he says I'm perfectly holy, I keep that law. He says that I require perfect obedience to that law because that is the order that I have established on my creation. Then there is a problem when we see that man and everyone has broken God's law. That's point number one. For man, everyone has broken God's law. There's a definition of sin here. We'll leave it on the screen for just a moment so you can write it down if that's your uh, inclination. Sin is disobedience against God. It is refusing to do what he commands and insisting on doing what he forbids. Sin is fundamentally a matter of worship. Sin is fundamentally a matter of worship. Sin is disobedience against God. It is refusing to do what he commands and insisting on doing what he forbids. Sin is fundamentally a matter of worship. And I think for most unsaved people, let's say for a moment, they're like, hey, you know what? I don't know that I've done like all of these sins that you're accusing me of. I'd be like, great. Have you done everything in this book? Because that's what God has called us to. And so sin is not only just in doing what he forbids, it is also refusing to do what he commands. We are rejecting our creator. He has given us a command and we have said, no God, I am wiser than you. I will choose my own way. In Romans 1, when God indicts the pagans of the world for their unbelief, the main reason for the judgment rendered against them is that they did not properly worship God. They did not honor him as God or give him thanks, it says. Man's condemnation Paul says, can be traced to his failure to honor God properly. If worship is the ultimate priority, not to worship is the ultimate affront to God. So we are worshiping the one who created us or we are not. By the way, God has given us his law and we must obey it. Uh, your workbook says, it says, sin manifests itself in our thoughts, our attitudes, and actions. It manifests itself in the words we say and in the words we fail to say, in the actions we perform and those we fail to perform. So sin is both active and inactive, the acts of commission and the acts of omission you may have heard. Romans 3 goes on to say this, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, none who seeks for God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. By the way, a random act of kindness, not exactly continually doing good according to God's law. Might make you feel good for one New York minute, but when it's done, where do you stand before a holy God? Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Brother, this, I, I love this verse, and I think it's a great one when you're um, 
talking to an unbeliever because a lot of times we think that, like we stumbled into sin or we tripped over sin or like we did this little sin or, or whatever, like we just like got a 97 instead of 100 on an exam or something like that. But this is what the word of God declares. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. God says we have turned away from him. That is what sin is. That is what rebellion is. That's what it means when God says, you have broken my law. You have not been perfectly obedient like I have called you to be. You have turned. And it's, it's a very important point because it's one thing to say like, oh, like I'm almost there, but I'm not there. No, it's like, I'm going this way. Lord, I see you going that way. I'm going this way. I bet I'll reach my destination faster, right? Like that is what arrogant, sinful man says. I can turn over here and I bet I'm going to have a better life. I bet I'm going to have a better experience. I bet this is going to turn out exactly the way I want it. And I'm going to be holding to no owner over everything. What a rebellious act. We must understand that each of us has turned to his own way. We have turned away from God. We didn't just like try really hard and just like miss it a little bit. We were going the wrong way. And so is the unsaved person that you're sharing the gospel with. By the way, in, in Matthew 5, Christ uh, taught us that we know that the law is written in our hearts and the law, even though we know that the law was written on our hearts and the law was given in the Ten Commandments, we are equally guilty of sin by our very thoughts. This is when he said, hey, by the way, if you have hatred in your heart towards someone, it's like you committed murder. If you have lust in your heart towards a woman, it's like you committed adultery. See, we like to kind of like, er, er, er. like God, I know you think this is a big sin. I bet it's not that big a sin. I bet it's not that big a thing. I bet it's kind of okay if I like believe 99% of your Bible. I actually think that's pretty good. That's like an A plus in most academic standards, right? God says, no, all of these things are sin. James 2.10, remember, we have stumbled in one point, we are become guilty of all, which means this, that the consequence for that sin is separation from God. Separation from God. Isaiah 59, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short. We're going to stop right here for a minute. The Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. When you and I are struggling with sin, maybe when you talk to an unbeliever and say, like, I would love to come to God, but can he forgive all of this? Let's understand for just a moment that what is happening in that moment, when I say God can't save me from my sin, and when an unbeliever says God can't save them from their sin, we are sitting in judgment on the character of God. That is what he has said, my hand is not so short that it cannot save, right? We like to say that like, oh, like God, I would like, if God would save me, I would be okay with it, right? Like I would agree if he would agree. No, God says, my arm is not so short that it cannot save. Listen to the second part. Neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. I bet God doesn't hear me. I bet I wasn't talking loud enough. I wasn't, I wasn't praying. Like God's He's ignoring me. What's going on? God says, no, my ear is not so dull that it cannot hear. All the way back in Isaiah, God's like, I know what modern man's going to say about me. He's going to say like, oh, my God, if you would help me, if you would hear me, like this would be okay. God says, no, it's not a problem with me. It's not a problem with who I am. He says this, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. God is sufficient to save. He says, for whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. His ear is there. It is attentive. 
way better than mine when my kids are talking, I'll tell you that. Our God hears us. His ears are not dull. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Matthew 10, 28 says, do not fear those who kill the body, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We need to help a dying world understand that they are condemned because they have broken God's law and that law has caused a separation between them and God, not because God somehow got a shorter arm and stopped hearing and turned the wrong way, but because their iniquities have caused a separation. Matthew 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Our last point about man is this. What are man's options? What does man have in his toolkit? Well, man has this. Good works and good intentions cannot save anyone. Sorry for being a downer of a week. Next week gets better, I promise. We're going to talk about Christ and all that he has done to redeem us. But this week we're saying man, who he is in his nature, through his good works and good intentions, we can't. Titus 3.5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. We need to understand that God is a glorious God. He has created us. He has owned us. He has created us in his image. He has revealed his law in our hearts, in the hearts of every person you will encounter. He has said that I keep that law perfectly and that I require perfect obedience of all who would have fellowship with me. But you, through your obedience, disobedience and sin, have rejected my law. You've broken it. You've created a separation from me. And all your best good works and good intentions aren't going to get you back. That's the reality of the gospel message that we need to be taking to a dying world. As we close this week, let me just remind you there's a memory cards in the back. Um, For those that are going through the homework, work on memory card number two, work on worksheet number two. We pray that this is an encouragement to each and every one of you. We pray that as we understand who God is, you're thinking like, Ben, like, where's the practical stuff here? When we marinate ourselves in the truth of God's word, it's going to come out. We're going to talk about it more than our favorite restaurant. We're going to talk about the God who created you in every aspect of the world that you live on. And he wants for you to have fellowship with him. But you are not enough in in yourself. So let me tell you about somebody. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about God's gift to us. For God so loved us that he sent his son for us. We'll talk more about that when we pick up next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your kindness. Father, we thank you, Father, that you are the owner of everything. We don't have to figure out how to keep this all in control ourselves, Father. We just get to submit ourselves to you, submit ourselves to your word. Father, and I pray this week that as the men and women in this room go out to share the good news of the gospel, Father, we will remember everything that you have declared about yourself and your word, everything that you have declared about us. And Father, when we think about that for just a moment, Father, we are reminded that it is, it is not we, um, because we are saved, that we get to rejoice in, in what we have done. Father, we get to rejoice in what you have done, what you have done in putting your law in our hearts and sending your son for us and making a perfect sacrifice. And so, Father, we just pray that as we go out this week, might your words ring in our hearts, might it come forward out of our mouth, and Father, might um, those around us see Christ in us and hear Christ on our lips. We ask all this in his precious name, amen.